Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 65 of Americans Watching the Footy. It was a little hard to get this thing started with all of the oil on our arms that Braden Maynard was trying to wipe off pretty aggressively. It's amazing how much oil the Geelong forwards and Buddy Franklin put on their arms more than anybody else. It's not as noticeable with Dangerfield just because of his skin tone, whereas with Buddy with the skin tone and the tattoos, like, it really shows up. Hawkins too, because he's kind of on the tan side. I'm Benjamin Castle. That's Brian. I'm Ethan Castle. I really hope that picked up. I believe it did, and there he is again. The prelims have come and gone, and so has Brownlow Night. We'll get into the AFL's Night of Nights, as they call it, at the end of this round. But some news items that we want to get to regarding player movement and a couple other league stories before we get into the game action from this week. A lot of it picks up from where we've been in terms of trade news for the past couple episodes. We've been talking about Griffin Logue a couple times. He has now decided he wants to go to North. He wants to play for Alistair Clarkson, and he's reportedly got a five-year offer. I still think if he's just looking at what can I do to maximize winning, he would do this in a couple years rather than now. But there are always other factors at play, wanting to go home, etc., And it is kind of admirable that he wants to be there and kind of help build this North team up rather than just kind of jump in when things are getting really good. Yeah, the interesting thing about Logue is he's leaving home for this. He is from Perth. Rory Lobb is also from the West and wants to leave for the Bulldogs. And that kind of conveniently takes us to the next topic of discussion. We talked about how Lobb is right now not getting that request. I think he will eventually get it and Fremantle are just raising the price. But the Bulldogs may have a little bit more in terms of what they're going to be able to spend once they figure out what they're going to get in return for Josh Dunkley because he wants to go to Brisbane and reports suggest a six-year deal is in the works there. Dunkley's sister, Laura, plays netball in Queensland while his partner plays in Adelaide. So I guess he chose blood over love in this case. I don't know. He could command a really high return and... That'll be one of the more interesting trade stories to follow as this offseason shapes up. I wonder if instead of just picks, maybe the Bulldogs will ask for some younger players in return. Maybe some guys that are quality players that are kind of fighting for spots on the Lions list. Well, their midfield is certainly crowded now. We'll get into this in just a little bit. But with Devin Robertson getting better time, Jared Berry emerging as a tagger, and the ever-present Lockie Neal and Hugh McCluggage. It's already a whole lot that you have to factor in there. And then Dunkley's going to command a lot of the ball as well. So there are definitely going to be 
some more fringe pieces that are going to have an even tougher time making the AFL side. I mean, the Bulldogs midfield is definitely crowded as well, but there's the flexibility with moving Trelor to halfback, moving Bonapelli to full forward. Although you, Ethan, didn't think keeping Bont in that role full time would serve the dogs nearly as well. Yeah, I just think they have enough guys that can play those positions that they could move Bont back a bit, especially with Sam Darcy flexing his forward skill already. It's weird to see a player go from one really crowded midfield to another. You know, different play styles within the midfield, but still, Dunkley's going to be a key cog at Brisbane, and how they're going to be able to manage his time and his positioning, especially with Lockie Neal lining up in there as well, is going to be something I'll be watching for if this trade gets done as we expect. As we've been talking about North Melbourne, going back to North after we talked about Logue, the other big piece of their conversation now that they've got their coaching established, now that they have the structure above Clarkson getting settled, is what kind of package they're going to get in terms of potential priority picks, list availability, etc. I was hoping that they wouldn't give them a really early priority pick, and it turns out the league isn't giving North any more picks for this year, but they have granted North an extra second and third round pick for next year. There's a catch, though. Those have to be traded out this year. You know, coming from a background where something like this would never happen in a major American sports league, I think that giving a non-expansion team this sort of reward for prolonged sucking is a little screwed up. Just kind of a silly concept altogether to me. What I do like about these concessions in particular is that this should help the team improve via trades and free agency rather than just getting draft picks because you could draft these younger players as much as you want. But at the end of the day, a team needs greater experience and leadership within the playing group as well as in the coaching ranks. So hopefully this will help them make trades for guys like Griffin Logue, Hunter Clark from St. Kilda, and maybe a couple other players possible. North will also be granted two extra rookie list spots. So they'll be able to maybe get some more mature age state level players from that. We saw what Gold Coast was able to do with some of their extra rookie list spots with players of various ages. It does seem like at least this isn't so much a reward for tanking as it is kind of an anti-tanking safeguard. So when you put it that way, it's a little less screwed up. I just, again, I'm still against it conceptually, but the way it's being handled, I think at least this is the right way if you're going to do something like this. Last items on the list here both come out of... Coaching news at Richmond. First off, Kane Lambert is going to stay at the club's development coach. Secondly, Ben Rutten is rejoining as an assistant, and I just hope they treat him better than Essendon did. Low bar to clear. Seems like he was treated pretty well there during his time at Punt Road. Seems like the Richmond list retain a lot of respect for Rutten based on the interactions that they had with him after games this year. You really noticed it after round 23 in particular, and I'm happy for Lambert that he's able to remain connected with the club. Lambert was forced to retire during the season because he needs a new hip, and it's great seeing clubs continue to support their players following their careers. You know, Josh Dunkley nominating the Lions, maybe he was waiting until their season ended to say that, although I know Ollie Henry had already made his decision beforehand. Generally speaking, Teams don't really enter the off-season news cycle until their season ends, and Brisbane's season is over. I didn't expect two finals wins for him. I didn't expect any finals wins from him. 
I also didn't expect them to fall apart as quickly as they did in the second half of this game. They clearly were a step behind against Geelong the whole way, but to give up seven goals to two in the third quarter, did not see that coming. It seemed to me like at halftime, things looked good for the Cats, obviously. A 30-point lead is good, but the second half of the Lions played this final series made me think, all right, still going to need to play pretty well to finish this off. The Lions had also been putting on some pretty good pressure, especially early on. They had tied it up after J. Cole Jazzy had gotten an early run. They were definitely doing that better than they had early on against Melbourne. Cole Jasney became a player that I was really keen on watching in this game just because of how present he was in marking contests all over the field, especially on the wings in the middle third. Geelong were out marking pretty much everywhere, and it was particularly noticeable in the defensive 50. I just thought they were set up really well in the defensive 50. They were getting the numbers to the right places and by and large, they took Joe Danaher and Eric Hipwood out of the game. Hipwood got a couple meaningless goals near the end, and that was really it from them. Danaher did have a chance to have a big say in this game because he got the first mark inside 50 and set shot of the second half. This was right off the center bounce and a nice piece of center clearance work from Cameron Rayner, who unfortunately left the game shortly after this. Rayner hurt his ankle in a marking contest with Reese Stanley, but that passage of play occurred because Danaher missed everything on his set shot. Geelong went back the other way. Isaac Smith had a nice kind of overhead tap to Brad, thank you for changing my life close. Tyson Stegel subsequently hit a goal from the left pocket. That made it 55-19 with a little more than a minute gone in the third quarter, and the Cats didn't look back from there. Look, I don't know if Brisbane would have ever mounted a serious chance, even if Danaher had converted that shot. But it's certainly one of those things that, like, made you sit up a little bit more in your seat. And it was the first time that Brisbane had gotten that good look from a center bounce all game. So if they were able to actually make something from that, they could have gotten the momentum to continue that good work from there. And it was one of the rare times they were able to get just a clean forward mark inside 50 with, you know, the player coming out to meet the ball because the intercept marking has been a strength of this Geelong defense all year, but it was on a different level in this game. Cole Jashny stepping his game up so much was obviously huge. It's been way more than just Stewart and DeConing lately. And what really stood out to me in this game was how well the depth pieces contributed for Geelong, because you know what Stewart's going to give you. You know what Dangerfield, Hawkins, DeConing, Blitzovs will give you. Well, Dangerfield can be up and down, was definitely up and down this year, had one of his best games of the year, kicked the opening goal, kicked another later, but this was a full team win in a lot of ways. I'll mention it now, Brian Myers had a pair of goals. We'll get into him more in a bit. Gary, the true barometer, Rowan had two goals, and if you had any doubt about whether Brisbane had the chance to mount a comeback, not after Rowan scores multiple goals, I've gone over the stats before. And it was a collective effort as well to keep Lockie Neal at bay because Mark O'Connor wasn't named and we were both very critical of that. Yeah, that had me really worried. You know, he's been a key in the past two wins over the Lions to holding him in check. Instead, the game plan the Cats employed, they kind of rotated a mix of Tom Atkins, Cam Guthrie, and Joel Selwood on him. And instead of like a full double team, if Neal got the ball... 
you know, someone else in the area would kind of give help defense to use a basketball analogy. And they were able to do that because after pretty much every clearance, they sent the Ruckman back to make it seven on six in the defensive 50, meaning that you're able to, you know, have someone roaming around more and not have to worry about, you know, if I leave my man, then he's going to be wide open or then someone has to go cover him and leave someone else wide open. That numbers advantage was huge and is something the Lions never adjusted to. That helped defense, that extra man back. It helped clog up the corridor and Brisbane moved best through the corridor. They do, of course, have capable wingers in guys like Kalabachi. Devin Robertson has done some decent wing work over the year. Hugh McCluggage can move out there if he has to. But if you look at where Brisbane has found success, this final series in particular, you look at the runs they get, starting with Daniel Rich and Kadeem Coleman at halfback, either Rich with his long kicking or Coleman handballing off into Zach Bailey. They saw that they didn't have the space, and they never really tried to work through it. They tried to go around it, and once Geelong realized that, they were able to get numbers towards some of those contests as well. It's around this time, speaking of the wings, that we do have to talk about the casualty of this game for Geelong, Max Holmes' hamstring. Holmes got injured right when the AFL X-Score account declared the game over. It was, I believe, 70 to 25 at the moment. It was either 69 or 70 to 25. He looked a little shaky coming off the ground, and then he saw his reaction on the sideline. You go back and see the replay, and it was a hamstring injury. He did, however, come out and run a little bit post-game, and he ran at Monday's open training. You know, normally, if it's a part of someone's body that's been injured constantly, that's a bad thing. But in this case, it seems like he's got familiarity with minor hamstring injuries. So there's a non-zero chance he is going to be able to play come Saturday in the grand final or Friday night as it'll be here. If he doesn't make it in, really three clear options to replace him. One being just elevate Mark O'Connor. He can do some wing work, even though he's more of a defender. But if you bring O'Connor in, maybe then Jack Henry can move a little bit more forward. And we've seen how well he's done in that role. Another option, completely different player. But if you're just looking for the most talented available replacement, Brandon Parfit, who I've been screaming for for a while. I understand why, though, it would be tough to have him replace a wing as he's, you know, a physical player through the middle of the ground. And the last option, the most like-for-like replacement with his speed along the wing would be Sam Manigola. By the way, final score, Geelong 18-12-120 to Brisbane 7-7-49. I knew a blowout was possible in either direction, namely because on one hand, the Lions were on fire. On the other hand... They could have been pretty spent from the last couple weeks, and it sure seems like they were. And the Cats played maybe their best game of the entire year, considering not just the margin of victory, but who they did it against. You've had bigger margins of victory, but that was against teams like North. This was just a super complete performance. Really, the only areas of criticism you could make at all would be that they were a little shaky with the ball in the first quarter. You know, it seemed like the conditions were wetter than they actually were. And that they kind of let their foot off the gas after the game was totally over. You know, it was the Lions did come up with seven scoring shots in the fourth quarter, although five of those were behinds. But again, by that point, game was long over. And once again, the interceptability of the entire Geelong defense stands out. And it's why throughout the year, they've held teams to really low conversion rates inside 50. This time, the Lions at 37%. And... Chris Fagan, it was one of the first things he pointed out in his postgame conference, was that 
They tried to kick into contests and got beaten just about every aerial contest, largely because they were outnumbered when trying to bomb it inside, thanks to Geelong dropping that Ruckman back. One of the first things Fagan noticed post-game, but something he never adjusted for in-game, which is funny because he's usually a very smart coach who makes very good adjustments. When the Cats are intercepting like this, they're really tough to beat, but if you're going to do it, you're going to have to do it with a style that just prevents them from having opportunities to intercept. And the best way to do that by far is to kind of adopt that Fremantle style based more off running and handballing. Maybe some short kicks here and there, but just bombing it in long is not going to work when you're facing Tom Stewart, Sam DeConing, and then you have Jake Kolajashny playing his best game of the year. Well, both of the teams in the other prelim definitely do have part of that Fremantle style in them. That was one of the first things I was thinking about when it came to how is the grand final going to look different for Geelong compared to this one, other than likely being closer. Speaking of close, Brad Close has now won 41 of his 54 career games, and he is an important part in nearly all of them. You look at how this Cats team takes their game to the next level, and you get the regular contributors, your Mitch Duncans, your Patrick Dangerfields, who, again, the rest schedule that's been used on Dangerfield and Selwood this year has paid off massively, but... The depth guys really played their asses off in this game between College Ashney and Myers. In fact, a couple of different player rating outlets had Brian Myers as the best player on the ground, especially when compared to his expected contributions. And Fox Footy, their individual player grades, gave him a 9 out of 10. And had he not been a little sloppy handling the ball in that first quarter, when the ball was a little slippery, and made you wonder, man, maybe this should be Brandon Parfit's spot? You take out some of that first quarter sloppiness, he gets a full 10 out of 10. He was fucking amazing. He got 8 out of 10 coaches' votes. Dangerfield got the 10. Makes complete sense. Myers got his first goal after Kola Jashny won a ball from Zach Bailey. Tom Hawkins had a chance in front of goal and slipped, but was able to keep the play alive. Myers ended up finishing. He then had another score involvement. Not long after, in the goal that made it 46-19, to Zach Tui started things off with a nice play on Darcy Wilmot, and then it was a handball sequence from Myers to Holmes to Hawkins, who in the first half kicked really poorly. He was 1-3 on five shots before settling in. Grian found him along the right wing about five minutes into the third quarter for his second goal. Then Grian finished one from Selwood, stretched the lead to 50, deked out Kalamachi really nicely to hit Tom Hawkins. And then set up Jeremy Cameron off of a Jake Kolajashny intercept. It was so cool after seeing all the criticism of Grind throughout the year to see so many people, not just Cats fans that have always been on Team Grind with me, but people, you know, they're kind of neutral, nonpartisan observers from around the footy world, noting that he played a hell of a game. This was this was awesome. And for him to do it in a final is so huge because really when you think of him in finals, you think of that one miss he had against the Tigers in 2020. Heck, we have that in our introduction. Ethan, you insisted on something from Brian Myers being in the intro. Yeah, and it is a pretty funny call, so I, I stand by including it regardless of the context. I remember there was a meme made very quickly after that call by Bruce McAvaney where somebody kind of turned his and into a motorcycle shifting gears. That was good. I think that was on Reddit? Probably. 
We'll talk about Brisbane more extensively in our next episode as we do the post-mortem on their season, but it's going to be really tough to decide just how much of a success this season is because while they did finally win one at the G and won two finals, finishing sixth would be largely a disappointment for a team with the talent they have, and they ended up getting smacked in a prelim again. So it's hard to judge. I think I'd say it's a somewhat positive season. I'd give it somewhere in the B to B plus range, maybe. You know, the old the old adage of it not being how you start, but how you finish takes a little bit of a turn in this because they finished the home and away season poorly, but their finals campaign had two breakthrough successes because they'd had trouble in close games a couple times. You think about what they did against Richmond in round 19 and then finally getting through with the G and then falling flat here. We'll definitely spend a lot of time going over the arc of the Lions season. It's easy to see the good pieces they have all over the ground and it's easy to see which pieces are most important for them to be working best. And it's that midfield to tall forward connection that seems to be the most important when it comes to actually getting scoreboard impact. And with Danaher and Hipwood being cut off and ineffective for a lot of the game, you can understand why the Lions had the struggles they did. If your intercept defenders and your tall defenders are outplaying Danaher and Hipwood, that's reason to be excited and feel pretty good about your chances against any competition. If the Cats can replicate that or, I don't know, three quarters of that, they're just about impossible to beat. It was so fun to see just this level of reliability where only once the game was out of hand, you saw a few, ah, shit, that's a goal, entry kicks. Like I said, we'll talk about the Lions more in our postmortem. Couple of quick things, though. I think all the way back in our season previews, I said their success this season will be defined by their finals performance. And it's just a little tougher because you expected them to be a top four team, right? I expected them to be a top four team and go out in straight sets. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag depending on your perspective, but I'm definitely more positive about them than I was a few weeks ago. Also, looks like this is the end of the line for Mitch Robinson. It's definitely the end of his time with the Lions. And then he was included in the montage of outgoing players at the Brownlow medal, which makes you think that would, in fact, be it. He wasn't a player that I really thought much about until starting to watch his videos, which for someone who's you know getting a chance to see things like what the inside of an AFL club looks like or what an AFL locker room looks like compared to, you know, what a locker room in an American stadium looks like. He's really provided some awesome insight for us that's really helped us kind of flesh out our knowledge of the details of the game. So I'm really thankful for that. Also, he's just an interesting player because crazy talent, some reckless decisions, some of which worked out tremendously well, some of which were catastrophic failures, never boring, but someone worth giving a mention to, even though we'll be talking about him much more in episode 66. Hopefully he stays involved with the club in some way. It's easy to tell how much he and his family enjoy their life in Queensland. I could definitely see him staying on in some capacity with how he was able to turn things around once he arrived. I can see how he could have some value as a mentor. Or hey, what if, you know, if there's no immediate spot available with the Lions, maybe he'd consider going just a little bit to the south. Maybe an opportunity could arise with the Suns, but 
he's definitely someone that I hope stays involved with football and with sports in general because he's a great personality. Stats for this game, considering what an ass-kicking was, these numbers are very Geelong-heavy. Maybe the most lopsided in terms of number of players we're going to talk about for one team versus another out of just about any episode we've done. Our target is six players per team. We often go toward eight. Um, This one is 12 to two. And that's pretty appropriate. Patrick Dangerfield, two goals, two behinds, 28 disposals, nine marks, eight score involvements, 720 meters gained. Again, the rest schedule has given him so much more speed and That's one of the reasons it was so important to win that qualifying final. Get another week off. Keep him running well. Mitch Duncan, 26 disposals and 10 marks. A bit of a quieter showing from him, I thought, but he still accumulated the numbers. Zach Tui was very sharp. 24 disposals, 10 marks. Tui ended up having more of a job on the wing in this game than usual because Isaac Smith was starting forward and he was matched up with Daniel Rich for a decent amount of the game. You know, that Fox Footy article gave Smith a 4 out of 10, and he didn't have that many touches. I think he only had, like, two in the first half, but I thought he was more in sync than ever. There are a lot of times, I think I've compared him to, like, the shopping cart with one wheel that isn't quite going in the same direction as the others, and he looked so much more in tune in this game. I actually really liked his performance, even if the measurable, quantifiable numbers weren't so good. Jake Kolajashny, 23 disposals, 13 intercepts and 9 marks, taking the load off of Tom Stewart's shoulders. Brad Close, a goal, 22 disposals, 9 score involvements. Just amazing speed with or without the ball, as we've said all year. Grian, 2 goals, 22 disposals, 10 score involvements, another 3 assists, and... You know, you mentioned Daniel Rich, who I thought had a pretty decent game, one of the few Lions whose performances I liked. There were a lot of times when Grind was matched up with him and did a really nice job in making sure that he was a less pronounced participant, you know, not letting him get off those booming kicks out of their own 50, not giving him a lot of space to operate with because he can really engineer play from the back and unlock all of the talent in that Brisbane midfield. And... Grian made him look much more pedestrian, and I think that had a domino effect on the rest of the game. When it wasn't Smith being matched up with Rich during the times where Geelong were pushing into the forward 50, when Brisbane had the ball, it was Myers who did some of that work on him. I think that's a really smart matchup because Grian's fast as shit and can run all day, doesn't tire very easily. You know, there are a lot of good runners. Tyson Stengel's quite fast as well, though he doesn't have quite as much experience doing the defensive work, though I do love Stengel as a tackler. I think Grind's a pretty good tackler too, and he didn't really have many opportunities to tackle. But just to hinder Rich and be a thorn in his side and make sure that he couldn't get things up and running was so huge. Mark Blitzovs and Zach Guthrie, each with 19 disposals and seven tackles. Tom Stewart, 15 disposals, 471 meters gained. Not a huge night intercept-wise, but was able to roam around and impact matchups as needed. He kind of got to pick and choose his spots really well. Tom Atkins, 11 disposals and an octopus. He didn't need until the fourth quarter to take off in this game. And Tom Hawkins, despite his shaky start, won three in the first half on five kicks. Finished with four goals, three behinds, and 13 score involvements. Once again proving it's very hard to stop both him and Jeremy Cameron. Darcy Gardner did a pretty good job making Cameron just 
you know, a decent forward instead of an amazing one. Most of Cameron's touches came outside of the 50 where he is quite good, but that's not where you want him. And yeah, Gardner did a pretty good job containing him, but good luck containing both of them. For the Brisbane Lions, Zach Bailey was one of the more noticeable performers still, kicking 1-2 from 19 disposals and gaining 478 meters. He's always a big ground gator, and with Rich being defended more closely, Bailey had to step up into that role even more so. A lot of his work was kind of linking the midfield to the forward 50, so not many chances for him to actually score, but was able to still get involved. He's such a good player, and as he continues to age and really enter the peak years of his career, it's going to be a lot of fun. Again, missing out on the 22 under 22 because he turns 23 a day before the grand final. Devin Robertson, 17 disposals and an octopus. Jared Berry had seven tackles in this one, also kicked a goal in a 19 disposal effort. Wanted to mention him as well. You know, not as upfront a performance as in the week prior because he didn't get into anything MRO worthy. And also, you know, his team kind of got run over. Want to mention Lockie Neal's stats, by the way, because this was something here. Still had 20 disposals and six clearances, but 86 meters gained. 86. The first time in his career, statistician Jaden Papowski on Twitter tells us that Neal has had the lowest meters gained out of the starting combined 44 for both teams. So well done, Chris Scott. We were questioning his plan and what he was thinking by not naming Mark O'Connor. Clearly it worked. Keeping fresh legs on him was an excellent plan. I wouldn't have gone with trying something new, but it was obviously a well thought out and very well executed plan to the point where you rarely saw anyone have any sort of difficulty with it. He did get a couple of really early clearances and I was thinking, oh shit, this is going to be a problem. They're really going to regret not having him in there and then settled in nicely. The whole team really. Here's an interesting one for you before we take our little ad break. The Brisbane Lions have not beaten Geelong in Victoria since round six of 2003. This was mentioned during the broadcast. BT also mentioned that Chris Scott played in that game. What he didn't mention as part of that is that not only did Chris Scott and his twin Brad play in that game, but so did two other current AFL coaches, Michael Voss and Craig McRae, who of course got his team into the other prelim. And all three of those current coaches actually scored a goal, and McGray scored four. I wanted to mention that because it's amazing to see how many coaches came out of that Lions three-peat team. Don't forget, as always, you can find us on Twitter at AmericansFuddy. You can find me individually on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe on Instagram at CatNameGrian. You can find me individually on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Been talking a lot of college football lately with UC Berkeley, or Cal, as it's usually called in terms of athletics, having played some interesting games as of late. And apparently, KO does carry some college football. I'm not sure if Cal's game against Notre Dame was carried, but it was an interesting affair. Sloppy at times, stupid at times. Not boring, though. Just kind of the way Cal football is. I said at one point during that game, I'm not sure how they're going to lose, but I know it's going to be stupid. And I was right. But college and NFL results this week just concern me a lot less because 
the Cats are in the grand final. That's my priority right now, and it's a lot of fun. So one more to go, and it's going to be a final boss fight, so to speak. You know, initially heading into finals, the Swans were the team I did not want to face, but it kind of feels right to line up with them in a grand final. You know, it's two great teams. It's the one team Geelong have not beaten in the last two years. And again, it it just feels right to me. It's time for Zach Tui to keep a wallet. Take their whole team's wallets. As little drama as we had in the first prelim, the second provided more than enough. 45,000 plus at the SCG, a tad more than they had just four weeks ago when this matchup was in round 22. Sydney stopped Collingwood's winning streak then, and they ended up ending Collingwood's season. We thought it was going to be pretty smooth sailing for a while with how things went in the first half for the Swans. They led by 21 at quarter time, by 30 at halftime. Once again, I was noticing the work that their smaller players were doing. Chad Warner, of course, running through. James Rowbottom doing anything and everything in terms of getting clearances and making plays happen on the ground. I've been focusing on Justin McInerney for the past couple weeks. I mentioned this in a Twitter space I was in, but I've been loving watching McInerney this year because he starts in the midfield, he starts in that six, and then very quickly after most bounces, he shifts back into the defensive 50 and he starts a lot of their rebound play. And you saw the impact of that in the first half of this game in particular. The first half also had a lot of sequences where Collingwood just lacked the general crispness and discipline that has made them so successful throughout this stretch. Yes, umpiring did not help them. I'll just get that out of the way right now. It is really funny that the night before, Collingwood fans were bitching about umpiring favoring Geelong when outside of Sam DeConan getting away with a throw in the first quarter, there was really none of that, and free kicks were 22-13 Brisbane. But um, you have moments like... A goal with about three minutes left in the first quarter by Chad Warner really defined that for me. Nick Dacos had a turnover off a handball. Warner kicked from the left boundary and the ball bounced once, maybe twice, through the goal square. And there was no Collingwood defender there to get a finger on it. Not a finger! Which is just not the sort of thing they usually do. And maybe that's the product of not having Taylor Adams, who made plays like that two weeks ago against the Cats before tearing his groin off the bone. But I don't think that's the only factor. It was just a general lack of discipline. I think they gave away four 50-meter penalties for the game. And yeah, a couple of them were didn't have to be called, but by the book, they were certainly in a protected area 50s. I was glad that the 50 they gave to get him in super quickly after he ran over a mark and just wasn't even given time to get back didn't result in a Sydney goal, in fact. Collingwood got the next goal, so once again, ball don't lie. Yeah, just a lack of discipline and composure that it made Collingwood look young and inexperienced, and ultimately, I really believe that's why they couldn't dig themselves out of this hole, despite pretty great effort to do so down the stretch, where once again, you think a game's over, and then Collingwood make their typical push. One of the only players who was constantly doing good things for the Pies early on in this game was Mason Cox. And we're not just saying this because we're Americans. Who watched the footy. Roll credits. But he was legitimately getting involved. He was responsible in a lot of ways for three of Collingwood's first four goals, starting the passages with good disposals. And it just made too much sense. It's September. Of course Mason's going to step up. 
Unfortunately, he ended up going down near the middle of the third quarter with a groin injury of his own, and he was soon subbed out for Nathan Kruger. I am very glad that Mason has gotten the incentive to stay signed on for 2023 because he is clearly a vital piece of this team on a lot of occasions. And with Brody Grundy out of the picture and Aiden Beggs still making his way up, Cox is going to need to be a major part of ruck work with Darcy Cameron, and then he'll still have his all-over-the-ground impact like he had in this game as well. The lead kind of kept swinging between about two and five goals for a pretty lengthy period. Every time it seemed like the Pies were going to make that push, Sydney would counter, usually with a big play by Tom Papley, who has maybe the most punchable face in the league, but unmistakable talent. Damn good player, just annoying as hell to face. And I'm sure if you have him on your team, you love him. But even if I had him on my team, I would also be fully understanding why other people wouldn't like him. It's like... If you're a Collingwood fan, you should be able to understand why other people don't like Jack Ginnivan, who, by the way, I hadn't seen a couple of these videos until recently of him just like goofing around at training. And then you remember, yeah, he's still 19. And like seeing his reactions to things on the field are really fun because then, you know, you put yourself in his shoes and it's like, I'm a 19 year old kid kicking a huge goal in a final. And never mind what club you're doing it for or any of the backstory of, you know, you got all these fans booing you all the time, whatever. Just the simple fact that he's playing in this instrumental role at such a young age is awesome. And it's totally okay to be jealous. So Cindy had a steady, usually comfortable lead for a while. And then there was the first sign of a potential derailment or at least a bit of buckling of the rails when Sam Reed went down. He was actually being attended to starting the back half of the second quarter and Sydney were still playing all right by that point. Collingwood were definitely letting them get off easy a couple times with some missed connections. But after halftime, when Reed was subbed out for Braden Campbell, things clicked for Collingwood because... Reed had steadily been, and has for a lot of this year steadily been, their go-to non-Buddy Franklin tall target. And he can also play in a bit more of a midfield role at times. I've really appreciated his performance. That round 12 win against the Demons, he really broke out, and I hope that other fans are able to appreciate his performance. I hope this coming week that's appreciated because we'll see hopefully what the Swans look like without him. And then I hope we can watch and admire him as a player more next year because I really hope he doesn't play this week. I hope he's not feeling any pain, but I hope he's also just like unable to run at full speed, you know, where it just feels like, I don't know, he's kind of running underwater. I feel like that's the most polite way to say this, where it's like, I don't want you to physically hurt, but I also really don't want you to play. It's weird talking about a 30-year-old player that way where it feels like he's breaking out again, but we hadn't really noticed him that much in our first two years watching the game. He had been a fringe guy on their roster. He had been omitted a few times. We were thinking that Joe Lamardi was going to more steadily get time over him. And then Reed had these couple big games, showed his worth all over the ground as a tall, non-Buddy target. You know, Buddy has been asked to take some midfield marks sometimes because they need that. But Reed has been used more and more in that role. And when he went out, you could tell that was missing. Logan McDonald did get a goal off of a pack mark close to the post right after that. 
And I was thinking maybe McDonald could be shifted toward that role that Reed had, but it just didn't click. And McDonald clearly needs a bit more time to develop into that better full field mark. And Sydney struggled to adjust to losing Reed. After scoring 11 goals and 73 points in the first half, they were held to three goals and 22 points total in the second. Collingwood started getting steadier forward time. They weren't able to get as many points as you thought they should have for much of the third quarter, and they ended up only getting three goals in the quarter. They were down 88 to 65 after three, but they kept getting the connections. They kept getting inside 50 entries, and at some point, most of the collective footy world probably thought they were going to get it done. I wasn't ever, like, convinced, but I thought there was, like, a 55 to 60% chance. Yeah, at least people thinking that it was more likely for Collingwood to win than Sydney. I definitely thought that in the final six or so minutes. With about nine and a half to go, Tom Papley got a free kick. I think it was a free kick that was called for high contact against Cleaner. I still don't think it was a mark. The big question is, did he push Darcy Moore in the back? Did Moore slip? At whatever rate, the whistle favored Papley. He made good on it. It was the Swans' first goal in nearly 35 minutes of real-time play, and it put them up 94-74. to Another of those moments where you thought, okay, that's it. I would say at that point, my personal like win expectancy would have probably sat well above 80% for Sydney, maybe even 90%. Mine was probably around 75 because I was expecting Collingwood to close well, and they did. Even though Sydney cleaned up off stoppages in the fourth quarter, they had just left a lot of points on the board. And the tide had clearly shifted. Collingwood were starting to get more efficient. After an insufficient intent kick by Logan McDonald, Will Hoskin Elliott got a free kick in the right side corner of the 50. Brody Mychek got a contested mark. It's been a difficult later part of the season and a more difficult season in general in a lot of ways for Mychek, but he had a big moment there, made it a 15 point margin with about five and a half to go. Then after Luke Parker overran the ball, Darcy Cameron had a nice pickup, and he and Scott Pendle restarted things forward for Collingwood. Hoskin Elliott was involved again because he crumbed a kick that he should have ended up marking, but ran around and made it a nine-point game with four minutes left. At that point, my win expectancy was probably 75 to 80% Collingwood. When things were clicking for Collingwood, they were making good off of their forward pressure off stoppages where... Sydney has been so strong for a lot of the season, thanks to players like James Rowbottom really blossoming in that role, and Ollie Florent doing well as he's been moved further back. But Florence had a kick from the defensive goal square that was smothered by Mayacek, and Steele sidebottom picked it up and put Collingwood within three points. It was 95-92 with 2.42 to go. After Nick Blakey had to rush it behind after Collingwood got out of the center circle, I was probably thinking 90% Collingwood's going to get away with this. I don't know if I was thinking that high, but I was thinking the Swans are going to need another goal at least, which, you know, you could have had a scenario where both teams scored another goal, but you didn't feel like 95 points would be enough for Sydney at this stage. What ended up happening, though, was that Sydney finally got the big pack marks that they needed to eat up a whole lot of time. Buddy Franklin got one in a 2v2 situation Franklin had scored two goals in the first half, by the way, so he's now at 1,047 for his career. And then Franklin kicked to Tom Hickey, who got one in a 3v3 pack 
That was with 74 seconds left. Sydney were still too far out to score, but they had a decent look at things. If they managed to get a mark inside 50, it was over. At that point, I had probably gone toward about a 50-50 expectation because I thought Collingwood was going to do something good pressure-wise. But for a lot of Americans, that was the last they saw of the game. If this was all a ploy to convince more people to buy Watch AFL, it worked. The game froze with 51 seconds to go on Fox Sports 1. Then it cut to a little college football bit, and then they just kept going with other programming like the game had already ended. Didn't even cut to the montage. I am sorely disappointed by that. And this now marks the second week in a row where we've had some issues with Fox's coverage freezing and cutting to other things. We had this problem with Brisbane and Melbourne last week, so I hope you have Watch AFL if you're here in the U.S. or if you're relying on the Fox Sports 1 feed in order to watch the grand final this Friday slash Saturday. So Sydney, we're looking for that mark inside 50. They couldn't get it. Collingwood gets the last rush through, surprise, surprise, Jack Crisp, who I can't believe is already 28. Based on the way he runs and the impact he has, I would I was thinking that he was at least a couple years younger. The Swans did manage to force a stoppage by stopping Jordan Degoe in his tracks in Collingwood's forward 50 with 24 seconds left. And there was another stoppage a few seconds after that. Degoe, by the way, had much less impact in the game than either of us expected, or at least a less consistent impact, because when he was at his best, so were Collingwood. He didn't do a ton until that fourth quarter run, but when he got involved, you saw just how good they were. You saw how good he was during their better stretches in the loss to Jalon. He was excellent during the Frio game. It was a really good finals run for him, and I think he kind of puts the pies at a crossroads with the possibility of him moving on. I think he makes enough of an argument at times with the high-end talent to put up with some of the headaches and keep him on board. And at this point, that looks like what Collingwood are going to be doing. But the first three quarters for Dugowie definitely were a disappointment with the impact that he'd had in the first couple finals. But the ball rested with Dugowie. After that last stoppage, which was with 18 seconds to go, the ball spilled to Justin McInerney. He got rid of the handball just in time to avoid holding the ball. Ball went toward the goal square. Callum Mills ended up rushing the behind with four seconds left. The Swans held on 14-11-95 to Collingwood 14-10-94. Exhale, massive cheering, whatever your reaction was on the siren. I couldn't believe the Swans had actually managed to get it done still. This was maybe the most exciting game you'll ever see that doesn't have a single lead change or tied score after the opening minutes and a team getting out to, you know, a 30-point lead, final or not. It's just hard to come up with a more compelling game without, you know, things that you can measure like lead changes. But this kept you on the edge of your seat pretty much the entire way. Even the sequences where things looked like they were going to spiral out of control. It was through exciting stretches of play. Both finals of Swans of play now have been just unbelievably compelling and entertaining as they've played at a faster pace than I'm used to. And Collingwood ended up being the rare sort of team that actually forced Sydney to play even faster than normal at times, especially in the second half. By the way, I didn't see any Collingwood players just lying on the ground afterwards, so success Craig McRae. And also just success in general this season. To go from second to last to a prelim so quickly, even with what you already had on the list already, is phenomenal. 
realistically, you would have thought this would have been like a middle of the pack, you know, like 10th through 12th place team, maybe, would have been considered like a success for them, and they blew this thing out of the water. It's hard to get people to speak glowingly of Collingwood, but I think even people who absolutely despise the Pies would have to admit they did a damn good job this year. The close games they won were much more skill-based than luck-based, and look, they're a team that's going to get tons of TV time and national discussion whether they're good or not. So whether or not they're winning, it's good that they're playing in entertaining games. And their younger and newer pieces definitely had impacts. Bo McCreary with a couple nice moments. Jack Ginnivan being the center of attention for actual positive on-field reasons. The Daycost brothers doing their thing. Unfortunately, Ash Johnson did not have a great game for the second game in a row. And he had two touches. Not a great game. He was basically invisible. He's still able to hit some insane shots. I really like him. I think his future is really bright, but we're finally seeing the growing pains that we expected to see a little earlier. And it came at a pretty unfortunate time. They will get better from this, though. And with what he has offered, I hope he does continue to get time at AFL level to try and figure things out. The difficulty also for Collingwood is, unless you're putting one of Cox or Cameron in the forward 50, Johnson is probably your tallest marking target. And he's undersized for that role. So he probably does need some assistance there. And maybe the extra attention on that taller player could help him get more opportunities. I guess the Swans might have a similar problem if Reed can't get up for the grand final in terms of having too few tall targets. Maybe a common thread we'll see between these teams as they continue to develop. Looking ahead to that grand final matchup, a lot of teams have had trouble matching up with Franklin and Reed together. But when you have DeConing and Stewart and Blitzovs, you've got your choice of matchups there. And then, of course, Reed might not even be playing at this point. I think people are expecting Reed to play, but I think Geelong do have the right pieces to match up against them pretty well. And then when it goes to the opposite end, you're expecting that Hawkins and Cameron are going to be marked by the McCartans, and that'll be fun because we didn't see all that much from the McCartans in this game. Collingwood's handball-heavy style and just good planning in general meant that both McCartan brothers, especially Patty, didn't have much of a role in this game. Patty, I only really noticed when the Swans were going forward a couple times and he pushed up a bit. Tom did manage to get to the ball a couple times when I didn't expect him to, but I'd expect both of them to figure in more in the grand final. And what a story for them to be playing the grand final together, for Patty to even be playing at all still at this point and to be playing as well as he has. I wanted to make sure we didn't lose sight of that story through all this. Individual stat lines of note for the Sydney Swans, Callum Mills, who ended up saving the day at the end, had 27 disposals, an active role throughout the ground. Will you be thinking about him in the bathtub? No, because I don't really use the bathtub, but he did have the play that preserved the one-point victory, and when he's been called upon to move further back and either start play from back there or shore things up defensively, he's done an excellent job. Luke Parker had a goal from 23 disposals, Chad Warner kicked 1-1 from 22 and gained 644 meters. His ground gain numbers are going to continue to be insane, and they are functional. I'm looking at you, Aaron Hall. Errol Golden, two behinds were his scoring output, but 20 disposals and 7 tackles, which matches the career high he set in the second qualifying final. 
He is an extremely clean player. I love watching just how smoothly he receives and disposes of the ball, but for him to be able to have this physical and defensive side of the game as well as a sign of his versatility and of the importance he's going to continue to have to this Swans team. Nick Blakey with 19 disposals and 9 intercepts, and the Swans making the grand final against the Cats means that we're going to have the matchup of the two players who we've both tagged as those when they get the ball, good things happen, guys, between Blakey and Brad Close. So that ought to be fun. Maybe they could even end up matched up against each other, though I would imagine Blakey would probably gravitate more towards, say, Tyson Stangle, because Blakey usually plays farther back, whereas Close is kind of in that, you know, half-forward spot. I was thinking Blakey on Stangle as well, because I don't like how other smaller defenders match up against Stangle. James Robottom kicked 1-1 from 18 disposals. He had an octopus. The Swans were outdone in clearances by a little bit, but Robottom ended up leading Sydney with six clearances. Maybe he's the type of guy that needs that Joel Selwood matchup at stoppages to limit him, or a combination of Selwood, Atkins, and Cameron Guthrie to keep fresh legs on him in those situations. On the Collingwood side, Jack Crisp with another monster game. A goal, 29 disposals, 11 clearances, 9 score involvements, 6 tackles, 643 meters gained. Scott Pendlebury, 29 disposals. Nick Dacos, a goal on 23 disposals. Darcy Moore, 20 disposals and 10 intercepts. Really stepping up as kind of the top defender on this Pies team, whereas in a lot of games, he's just kind of been one of many. In these final series, you've been able to notice Darcy Moore in those halfback situations. And as I've said multiple times before this, either off-air talking to you, Ethan, or I believe at least once on-air before, Moore has been freed by Nathan Murphy since Murphy came back to do that halfback work where he's best. Darcy Moore is not a natural fullback. He was an All-Australian at halfback, and you can see that in the style that he plays, and it's no coincidence that Collingwood's fortunes turned significantly better for the season once Murphy returned. That was when their winning streak began. Isaac Coiner, one of his best games since early in the season. 18 disposals, 10 intercepts, 7 tackles. I really liked Steele Sidebottom's game. He was super active. A goal, a behind, 19 disposals and 520 meters. I hope he sticks around for a while, in part because Steele Sidebottom is an awesome name, and in part because he's a damn good and very entertaining player. Jordan Goey finished with just 12 disposals, but again, really stepped up in that comeback effort, and he recorded eight tackles, but a sign that Collingwood weren't as opportunistic as usual. As a team, 38.7% efficiency inside 50, which just seems unlike them. Remember that number's not disposal efficiency, it's efficiency on getting off scoring shots from entries, and yeah, that is very unlike Collingwood. To see them below 40 is pretty remarkable, actually, and not in a good way. We're going to talk a little bit about Brownlow Night. You called it the Night of Nights. I call it Passover because it's a night that's different than all other nights, although I think you can eat bread products. I mean, beer's a bread product, and a lot of beer was consumed for sure. A lot of alcohol in general, usually after players put on shades once they received votes. Tom Liberatore did it best. I thought this was a super entertaining show. You know, it's been fun to watch the last couple years, but this had me laughing way more with the sunglasses, you know, guys just trying to 
do something funny anytime they knew the camera would be on them. The front bar tribute to Gillen McLaughlin. Who is still alive, by the way. There was an on-screen graphic that at one point made it look like he died. At the age of eight. Some of the great tributes and, you know, the highlights from each round included the construction guy retrieving the ball at Geelong during the round four win over Brisbane. Just goofy stuff like that was really celebrated well, all while still, you know, appearing as a dignified event. Not only do we have the actual Brownlow count to get into briefly, but the Mark of the Year and Goal of the Year awards were given out, both of which I would have probably put the winners, you know, second or third among the three that were nominated. And I would have had my own different top three altogether, at least for gold here. But first off, let's get into the winners. So Benjamin, why don't you tell us about the mark of the year? The winner of the mark of the year didn't even have the best mark in his own game. No offense, Mitch Georgiatis, but Hayden Young outdid you in that game. This was in round 16 over Fremantle, as was probably implied by the mention of Hayden Young. It was a super high Mark he took over Brennan Cox. Didn't keep control of the ball once he got to the ground, but the greatest altitude gained on a mark that night. Hayden Young was actually the nomination from that round, which makes things all that much weirder. I thought Young's was great, and I also really liked Charlie Spargo from round 11 in a loss to Fremantle. If I was nominating, my top two would have been Young and Spargo. And I would have probably chosen Young over Spargo. I would have been really on the fence between those two. The Georgiatis one was impressive. If he had kept the ball all the way to the ground, it would have been even better. But even if he had done that, I think I still would have preferred Young and Spargo. Goal of the year went to Sam Draper from round 18. He won the center bounce, executed a give-and-go handball with Matt Guelphy, shook off Charlie Ballard and scored. Kicked outside of the boot, too, which made it even crazier that a Ruckman had a goal like that. This one did win the vote for that round, and I knew that Draper had won as soon as I saw that Adam Cooney was presenting it, because just seeing a presenter from that positional group just kind of brought it home. I don't have a problem with this one winning. It was a cool goal, but I think there were better. My top three for the year, there was a different goal from round 18, the Jeremy Cameron turnaround shot from the boundary in the Cats win over Carlton. One that did make the top three, Josh Dacos in round 19 against Essendon, no less. And then one that didn't make it, but finally got its recognition in the brief little recap of round two. Toby Nankervis kicking one in out of midair in the Tigers win over GWS. That was my goal of the year. Round two, Toby Nankervis, I don't think he was even nominated. That Cameron goal obviously got the biggest reaction out of me because, you know, emotional investment in the game. But I could have gone with that or Nankervis or Dacos. The Draper one was really good and would be good enough to win most years by itself. But there's a lot of competition this year, so I would have given it elsewhere. But in no means was it not a completely badass goal in celebration. Everything Sam Draper does is badass, so I can't complain too much. Just... I prioritize different elements when looking at goals than the uh, electorate or whatever you'd call it would be here. So that's why I see things differently. Nankervis made a lot of just really awesome early season plays that we highlighted in our episodes. If you go back toward the end of those for our talks about the nominees there, he did have a nomination in round nine, but somehow didn't win that. So at this point, we might just need to fashion him a homemade award. The actual award came out of 
a really dramatic count that came down to the final round had me uncertain until the last moment, basically. I knew after round 22 what the result would be. And I was actually driving to work. I had a very early shift and I was just listening to this live through the Watch AFL app. And I yelled out after hearing the results and realizing who was still ahead, Cripps has it. Because I knew that Patrick Cripps got the three votes from that final round loss to Collingwood. He was clearly their best in that game. Remember, Sam Walsh was out for that, so Cripps had even more responsibility and did everything that was asked of him except actually get the Blues over the line. In that round 23 recap, I mentioned Cripps probably gets the three votes despite losing, and I don't know the last time someone won the Brownlow thanks to a best-on-ground performance in a final round loss, so Swamp, anybody else who can figure that out, go for it. Cripps accrued 29 votes. I was surprised that it didn't require 30 to get over the line, and so was Cripps himself. Lockie Neal was second with 28, and I was supremely surprised that Neal got a single vote in round 23 against Melbourne. That was a game that was D's dominated. Neal got a lot of touches, but didn't gain ground. Tuke Miller finished third with 27 votes. I know, Ethan, you thought that he had the Brown Low one just looking at the home and away season. I had hoped he could have gotten over the line, but I didn't expect him to be able to do it based on not being the best of field in round 23 for the Suns. I was surprised that it went to David Swallow. I was expecting Alex Sexton to get those votes for a six-goal effort. Andrew Brayshaw and Clayton Oliver tied for fourth with 25 votes. The back half of the top 10, Christian Petraka, 24, Callum Mills, 21, Dion Prestia and Jeremy Cameron with 19 each. Prestia and Zach Barrett rounds out the top 10. He had 17 votes and he gained 14 of those between rounds 16 and 20. The West Coast Eagles, by the way, would have finished joint 12th. They had 15 votes as a team. So did Carl Amon, including three against Geelong when I didn't think he was that good. I thought he should have gotten one or two. Amon had a three-game run of three-vote performances, rounds 13 through 15, and those were some of the most surprising results of the night for me. Other surprising results, despite beating the Saints in round 23, the Sydney Swans did not receive any votes for that game. A team hasn't polled all six votes in a loss since 2006. And also, well done Dan Hanabry on a best-on-ground performance in his final game. That was deserved. Duck. Josh Kennedy also got best-on-ground in his final game because that's what happens when you kick eight goals. It seems like you get the three votes if you kick six. Five, sometimes six, you get it. Uh, Alex Sexton disagrees. He got one. I was surprised Rory Laird didn't get any three-vote games. I think overall... Other than Tom Stewart, intercept defenders went largely unrecognized. Tom Barras did not get a single vote all year, and Sam Taylor got just one. So I'm thinking in the next couple of years, I'd love if we could start our own award, kind of using like the same Brownlow system, but giving it to the players that we think are the best. I think that would actually be really fun. Speaking of Rory Laird, he only finished in third on the Crows. He got just 10 votes for the year. Ben Keyes had 11. He pulled at least two votes in four of their first five games. And Taylor Walker ended up with 14. So I guess for lesser teams, it was 
the bigger goal scores that got more notice? I'm not sure, but yeah, Laird already a snub in one way this year, even more of one now. For all of those criticisms, though, what a super awesome event altogether. And like you said, what a count. This was the most gripping count in the three seasons we've watched. Yeah, Ali Wines only officially won the Brownlow in the last round last year, but you had the sense he was going to win it. I don't think a lot of people had realized that Patrick Cripps was going to win it until that final game started having its votes announced. And also, of course, Cripps winning it is all the more a story because of the way in which he was able to play the final two games of the season. Remember, his suspension got overturned not because the play in question wasn't dirty. And there's still argument about that, of course. But it got overturned because the evidence used to suspend him in the first place was done poorly. Kind of like, you know, the Supreme Court overturning a decision in the U.S. Not because the person wasn't guilty, but because the argument put up against them was shitty. And that's what happened in this case. So if the AFL wants to suspend guys for things like that, they got to do a better job presenting the evidence. By the way, just want to mention, Cripps got three votes from round 20. That was when they lost to Adelaide. The predictor also had Cripps getting three votes from that game, but it just feels so incongruous with the arc of their season that the game that ended up sinking them was so critical in Cripps winning the Brownlow. It's so interesting and so weird a lot of the time comparing these best on ground votes from the umpires with what we see and also with how it compares with how the rest of the team has gone. You know, you can tell a lot of the time that some teams struggle so much by how few votes they got. West Coast hardly getting any. North getting only 31. Luke Davies Uniac only got eight, by the way. I think that's just a sign of how so many of North's games went. He was racking up the numbers. He was having impactful performances in the context of North Melbourne's going rate as a whole. But when you're getting run over, you're not going to get the votes. Usually, anyway. Also, Jason Horn Francis did not get a single vote. A little surprised by that, I guess. Not really, I don't know. You would think at least one game out of the year, he, you know, with the number of good performances he had, he would have earned at least one vote. Again, when you're on a bad team, you often get tough luck like that. Before we round out this episode, I have just encountered some breaking news. According to the official Sydney Swans Twitter account, Buddy Franklin is coming back for one more year. I guess that can put an end to any speculation of him going to another club, particularly Brisbane. So, uh, holy cow. I thought he was going to wait to make a decision until after the grand final. I thought had he won, he was going to call it quits right then and there, go out champion, out of out of all the conclusions to this, I guess it's sort of a saga, as opposed to the Essendon supplement saga, which, get it straight, it was a steroid scandal. I did not see this being the end result of it at all. So uh, I guess they agreed to friendlier terms to be able to get those players under contract because Buddy had been asking for more than the Swans were willing to offer, and suddenly something changed. Imagine what one more year can do for this Swans team, though even if they beat the Cats come Saturday. And they certainly can. I'm just looking at it from the individual milestone standpoint. Buddy's now 10 goals away from Doug Wade for fourth all-time. He is not going to get any higher. Jason Dunstall is at 1254. Good fucking luck. Nobody's scored 100 goals in a season since 
well, buddy, in 2008. But this certainly means he'll get to 350 games now, which is always a big milestone. And hopefully the Swans can start getting some more tall forward targets around him to lighten his load and maybe even free him up a couple times. Not sure. I know it's going to be infuriating for a lot of fans to have to see their team play against him one more time, but I say bring it on. That's going to just about do it for us this episode. Next time, join us for our postmortems of the Lions and Magpie seasons, as well as our grand final preview. The big day is almost here. It's going to be a fun week. I look forward to really soaking in all of the coverage, you know, the parade, everything like that. And, you know, for us, this is our first time getting to actually experience, you know, a full Melbourne grand final because the last two years we've watched it through different cities, different regulations and parameters. So it'll be nice to have the full experience this time around. We'll be giving our thoughts all week as more news comes in, not just from the grand final, of course, but from player movement and whatever else. On Twitter at Americans Footy, you can find me individually at BenjaminHK01. You can find me individually at Castle Media. And you can find Brian Harambe, the footy cat, underneath Ethan's bed. He calmed down very quickly, and we're very grateful for that because it made recording a whole lot easier. You can also find him on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. Thank you once again for tuning in, and thank you as well if you've provided feedback to any of my posts on Reddit about postmortems and anything else. I can't believe we're already close to the end of our first season podcasting. It's kind of wild how quickly everything's happened. They grow up so fast. <laughs>